change it up a little bit yeah you know it sounded like uh you had a cd stutter remember those <laughs> yeah yeah so man what's going on well it is uh winter the day before <laughs> the winter solstice here in ojai california and it's uh 70 degrees today tomorrow it's going to be 80 dude and you dude and you Yes, well, it's finally Alaska out there uh, today, and uh, we have a couple of inches of snow on the ground from last night, and uh, maybe seven to eight more inches coming all day long. Great, and more great. snow tonight, shoveling. and then it turns to rain on top of that. So we'll see what oh. happens. So we'll be slipping down the steep roads of Ketchikan, yes, Alaska. Yes, and then we live up on a hill, so it's always dramatic here. So, yeah. Before we get into our most amazing guest and one of the best topics ever of all the paleo episodes yeah. it could ever oh, be. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> here we go. What do you know about the strange hypothesis that a giant kraken... Oh, Arranged the bones of the ichthyosaurs in Berlin. What's it the called? Berlin, Berlin State Park. State Park. Yeah, State Park. The ichthyosaurs yeah. State Park in Nevada. In Nevada. I think a paper just came out that it's possibly a, a death maternity ward because there's adults and individuals. And then some crazy kook said, "Well, years ago, no, the bones were placed." Yeah, let's hear. It. Uh, years ago, <laughs> there was a hypothesis that this strange assemblage of ichthyosaur bones, the Triassic ichthyosaur bones, and they're big ichthyosaurs, were arranged in shonosaurus. Shonosauruses, but still, you know, yeah, there's still a lot of debate as to what genus is. But anyways, these giant ichthyosaurs, and there was this kind of way out there idea that maybe a giant squid, a kraken, had arranged their bones <laughs> kind of doodling around and even maybe suggested that it might have been sort of a self-portrait of the kraken. So, yeah. Uh, and I haven't seen the morphology of the site. Have you? And, no, and it's on my bucket list, indi- man. I want to go there. And you're in California. Oh. We could drive over to Nevada. Let's go someday. Yeah, let's, but let's do it. But but I'm, what I'm saying is, is the assemblage of bones. How does it even? How could anybody assume that an intelligent creature placed them in? Are they, are they weirdly placed? Are they stacked? Uh, they're not articulated, and they are, are they stacked in little smiley faces. Articulated. Uh, I didn't go deep into the paper. The latest paper that the hypothesis is that it might be a birthing site, but even then, yeah. there's, and that's the beauty of science. You run these ideas out there, and people take pot shots sure. at it. And so there's been even people challenging that idea, even though the group... Is there a reason for the mass death? Or well, that's what they're still... Or algae bloom? There's all, oh, those, no all those theories. Behavior does right. not fossilize. You have to infer a lot. <laughs> you know, so there's, there's a lot of that. I love that. And they... they uh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. No. Beha- some behavior does fossilize, right. as in... At- Dean Lomax locked in time. Well, footprints do that kind of thing, too. And so you can still, but, you know, you still can't have a snapshot exactly. But you do the rigorous science. I think they found baby ichthyosaur bones in the same site. So maybe there's a chance they were crawling up the land, having the babies there. And this is the spot. Would it make sense? Or did you get live birth? Oh, because, wait, wait, ichthyosaurs are marine reptiles. They have to breathe. Wait, they breathe yes, air. Yes, they breathe air. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah, reptiles yeah. Ah. going back to the sea. And so they've got to okay. breathe there. And do they lay their eggs up on the beach? 
I want to dive in. Let's let's get an ichthyosaurus. Well, Dean Lomax well, we is, did it. But we didn't do the Berlin site. Let's talk to someone about the Berlin okay, site. Okay, we can do that. I know a guy who knows a guy. Okay, so now, what is the most famous, iconic dinosaur? What is it? Come on. Brontosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> That's the little plastic model yeah, you had as a kid. Yeah, now it's a patasaurus, and then it's, a, it's back to the brontosaurus now. Come on. Well, it's T-Rex. It's the king. The king. Wait, do you hear his roar? Do what? you hear him? Is he out there? <laughs> Man, I'm scared. Oh, my God. That's scary. Oh, there's the, my, my coffee cup. The little ripples are in it. And who are we talking to? Well, we're going to meet Tom Holtz. He's a vertebrate paleontologist, acknowledged as probably one of the foremost authorities on Tyrannosaurus Rex. And he's in Maryland. Yes. We're going to call yes. him up. I've never met him. I'm super excited. This is going to be a meeting for both of us. So yeah. call him up, man. Okay. Hey, Dave, meet Tom Holtz, vertebrate paleontologist, author of numerous books. He's a principal lecturer at the University of Maryland's Department of Geology. He's worked on the Walking with Dinosaurs BBC series, as well as being featured in many documentaries like Jurassic Fight Club, Monsters Resurrected, Dinosaur Revolution, and Clash of the Dinosaurs on the Discovery Channel, and more. That's great. Did I get it right? <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And I'm federally obliged to add that I'm oh. also a research associate with the Department of Paleobiology at the National Museum of Natural History, which Fantastic. means, yeah, which means got I have a badge to get into the Smithsonian collections and work on fossils. And is this part of the one point seven trillion dollar budget that you had to say that federally? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> federally yeah. mandated. That's well, right. Well, exactly. welcome to Paleo Nerds. Uh, I know the answer to this. Uh, <laughs> we ask all our guests. Tom, are you a paleo nerd? Um, I'm not merely a paleo nerd. I am also, as I have said in print, the self-proclaimed king of the dino geeks. So, um... <laughs> oh, well, okay, king of the dino oh. geeks, and we want to talk about the king of the dinosaurs with you too. But I understand right. that you were actually born a paleo nerd, more or less. Uh, Mom got you uh, some plastic dinosaurs. This happened to me, too. As we all and, had them, yeah. And and that was it for you. But you actually wanted to be a dinosaur. Can you tell us that story? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, when I was really young, like three-ish or so, I got a couple of, of dinosaur toys. They were a you know, Tyrannosaurus and a Brontosaurus, as it was mm -hmm. called then and is called again. Yes. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was, at the time, you know, I I asked my mom, you know, what are these things? And she said, they're dinosaurs. And apparently I looked at her kind of skeptically, because how could these two things, which look so different from each other, be called the same thing when a horse isn't called a cow and right. you know, a lion's oh. not called a tiger? And so she didn't know what the answer was, but she came from a background in education. And so she got me a dinosaur book. In fact, specifically, it was the How and Why Wonder Book of Dinosaurs mm -hmm. from an old, you know, 19... Uh, 50s and 60s sure. uh, kid series. Could even be uh, a golden book. Yeah, yeah. Although I do have, I did get the golden book not long after that. The, the big golden book, especially. Right. Um, with the Zellinger art. But um, oh, yeah. in going through that book, you know, I, that just, you know, said, okay, this is it. I've now know a bit about dinosaurs. So when I grow up, I'm going to be one. In fact, specifically, <laughs> I was going to be Tyrannosaurus because if you're going to be a dinosaur, you might as well be the king. <laughs> Yeah. Eventually, you know, they, they, they broke it to me that that wasn't going to happen. So I decided I was going to uh, do the next best thing and, and study them instead. And unlike most people, I stuck with my decision that I made when I was three years old 
if more people did that, I think there'd be a lot more astronauts and firemen and so forth and yeah. ballerinas <laughs> yeah. than there are in, uh, in, in real life. You sure have studied them. Yes, and uh, you know, my course was set as I uh, want to get that crayon, and I was drawing dinosaurs as a kid. Oh, there you go. First thing I was drawing them, and I'm still I'm 68 years old. I'm still drawing dinosaurs with crayons, so I haven't gone far in life. But <laughs> you actually managed to make a living. Uh, your passion early on, and you went ended up going to Yale and and working with uh, John Ostrom. That's right. Yeah, got lucky enough to to be accepted at Yale, working with Ostrom as. His last student while he was a full-time faculty member. Wow. And that was... So what years are these? These are... So I entered in 87, and my last class was in 91, and then I wrote the dissertation in sort of 92, and defended in 92, and the degrees in 93. And, and for wow. our listeners, Ostrom is pivotal in paleontology. He named hadrosaurs a brief description of Ostrom from your point of sure. view? Sure. Yeah, and actually, and sort of in his background, he's he's different than uh, you or, or me in that he didn't start from a young age interested in di being interested in dinosaurs. He assumed when he went off to college that he was going to follow in his dad's footsteps and go into doctor. something in, in medical. Yeah, so 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 for a medicine, whether it's a doctor or dentist or something along those lines. And as part of his undergrad, he had to take a certain number of classes in biology that weren't pre-med focused. And this is a good thing, and I'm glad some departments still do that. And he managed to take a course on evolutionary biology. And then it was like, bing, yeah. okay. Holy cow. Yeah. This is something that really got his interest. So at a time when dinosaur paleontology was kind of at a low, so you have 50s into the early 60s, there wasn't as much research being done on dinosaurs, you know, even worldwide. Uh, yeah. compared they were to... gray, slow, and lumbering. Exactly. So, you know, compared to the pre-Depression era, there's a lot of active dinosaur research going on. Nowadays, of course, it's going incredibly well. But in that middle part of the century, very little primary research. But he was one of the ones who, who was doing that. He worked with um, Ned Colbert, who was a, a great paleontologist in his own right, one of the uh, key figures of the mid-century at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And Ostrom started working on... First, revising hadrosaurs, so the duckbill dinosaurs, which had been typically interpreted as these slow-moving swamp dwellers whose jaws were inadequate for eating anything but the, the softest of, of aquatic vegetation. <laughs> and so Oster was looking at these jaws and said, no, these are amazingly adapted for processing you know, tremendous amounts of vegetation. And then in his, his postdoc work, he started working on ceratopsids on horned dinosaurs and found a similar suite of adaptations. These are dinosaurs really well adapted for breaking food up, large volumes of food into really tiny bits. And he understood that one of the key aspects of uh, a physiology is your ability to get nutrients into your body quickly. And the way to do that is to take large volumes and break them down into small bits because chemistry works on surface area. You got to get those enzymes hitting the molecules on the edge of the particles of food. And he said, well, why would these dinosaurs have these adaptations unless they had a higher metabolic rate than something like a lizard uh, or uh, a turtle and so forth? Go. And so already he was beginning to think that the old model of dinosaurs being these slow, sluggish, cold-blooded animals was yeah. wrong. Yeah, He was groundbreaking. Exactly. And then he got his job at Yale, and early on there, he sort of reopened work on the cloverleaf formation 
which was, as he said at the time, was sort of the twilight zone. It was the where mid, is that the the cloverleaf formation outcrops in Wyoming and Montana. So it's Cretaceous. I mean, it's Cretaceous. Sort of middle, right? Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, we'd long known the rocks of the late Jurassic, the Morrison Formation and the American West. You know, Brachiosaurus, Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, Apatosaurus, Brontosaurus, Diplodocus. Those are super well known. And then the late Cretaceous dinosaurs from right. the Judith River and the Hell Creek and so forth. The Tyrannosaurus and the Horn Dinosaurus and the, um, the Duckbills, all super well known. But this interval in between was sort of a twilight zone at right. the time. And there have been bones found in the 1930s, but very little work had been done on them. But they knew where the outcrops were. So we went back out there. They were finding plant-eating dinosaurs. And okay, they're cool. But uh, 1964, <laughs> on the way back from the, the working in the field, getting back to like break camp, he came across the claw of a small carnivorous dinosaur. And that's cool, because all right. Oh, small carnivorous dinosaur. Dinonychus. 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 Ostrom preferred uh, the pronunciation Dinonychus, but honestly, you know, the dinosaurs are dead. Tom, <laughs> I get them wrong. I get I always get it wrong anyway. So a lot of people use that pronunciation too. Right. So that's fine. It's all right, Dave. So they, they went back the next year to that spot, found the rest of, or at least most of the rest of the animal. And this was for the very first time a raptor dinosaur, a dromaeosaur known from relatively complete material. There have been bits and pieces found since the early days of the 20th century, but nothing, nothing really complete. This fancy claw turned out to be on the foot, which was a huge surprise, because how are you gonna use a claw like that? You're gonna have to, you know, jab the ankles of other dinosaurs? That didn't seem very likely. Trip them. <laughs> Trip, exactly. So he pictured them as something much more like a, a big cat, being able to leap up and slash and stab and uh, eviscerate the prey, which went against sort of the prevailing model of even carnivorous dinosaurs at the time, where they picture them basically as Komodo dragons walking on two legs. <laughs> and here's something that's more like it's a strong. hawk or like a, a, like a two-legged cat. And then late, uh, shortly thereafter, when writing up the, the osteology of Deinonychus, and at the same time encountering more information about Archaeopteryx, the, at the time the oldest known bird, he began to notice bone for bone the real... In, incredible similarity between dromaeosaurs like Deinonychus and early birds like Archaeopteryx revived and even modified an old model, which was that dinosaurs were close to the bird ancestry. And in fact, right. the modification is that birds lie, were actually descendants of dinosaurs and were closer to things like Deinonychus than Deinonychus was to Tyrannosaurus or Allosaurus or the other carnivorous dinosaurs. Are most, so, most raptors dromaeosaurs? Yeah. So the main cluster of raptor dinosaurs are the dromaeosaurs. So right. Velociraptor, Dromaeosaurus, Deinonychus, Utah Raptor. Got it, got it. Um, there's another branch called the Truodontids. Truodontids so are known, more bird-like. Yeah, best known for for Truodon and some close relatives like Sauronithoides and so forth. A uh, little bigger brained, a little less powerful in terms of their predatory equipment. And they have interesting dentition, the Troodontids. Exactly, yes. So between these different lines of evidence, you know, plant eaters with adaptations to acquire lots of food, the very bird-like nature of Deinonychus and the fact that Deinonychus was built to hunt in a style very different than people thought a dinosaur could hunt, it began to, to get him thinking that maybe all dinosaurs had an elevated metabolism. Maybe they were warm-blooded dinosaurs. And then, of course, his, um, his undergraduate student, 
uh, Robert T. Bacher, Bob Bacher, yep. took that yep. took that ball and ran with it. And, and sure wrote dinosaur heresies, which exactly yeah. we've had we've had uh, now, Bob, Dr. Bob on yeah. before too, and we've had Jing May O'Connor talked about the sure. Pterodontids yeah. and the birds. But and... enough about them. I sure. know. I know where we're going. Yeah, you want Let's talk about the king, shall we? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> so wait, what did you call him? A T Rexpert? <laughs> yes, he's a T Rexpert. It's not my pun. It was actually used in another interview, wasn't that, Tom? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, but you are the familiar. king of uh, dinosaur geeks, and right. uh, you have uh, achieved this 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 kingly crown because you are a T Rex expert, one of the world's most yeah. foremost authorities on Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yep. Just actually, maybe why is it so darn cool? Why do we why do we pay respect to oh, the king? Oh, T Rexes are and boring. We'll, come on, yeah, they eat, lawyer, they eat on. lawyers. They chase people in jeeps. Right. Push you back on that. Sure, exactly. So um, anyone who works on anything other than Tyrannosaurus has to try to put it down when they're talking about how cool <laughs> their things are. And that's what haters got to hate. Um, you know, it's you, they got to try to take down the big guy to make their own things look cool. No, but yeah, Tyrannosaurus is an awesome creature for for a number of reasons. Okay. Historically, it's it was significant in terms of, hu of human paleontological history, because in the 19th century, people have found, you know, a handful of carnivorous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Ceratosaurus over here mm -hmm. in North America, um, Megalosaurus over in the UK. And those were impressive compared to any modern terrestrial predator. And then along comes at the dawn of the 20th century, a creature that dwarfs them, you know, Tyrannosaurus rex. If it could rear up, it could look up into a second story window. It's got teeth the size of bananas and so forth. And it sort of blew people away and had the advantage of being named by one of the greatest propagandists of dinosaur or paleontology <laughs> of like all. That. Was it Barnum? Uh, yeah. Uh, um, well, Barnum discovered it, and right. Henry Fairfield Osborne, his boss, right, is the right, one who right. named it and made it the sort of the showcase and centerpiece of the new exhibits at the American Museum of Natural History. So here you are in the publishing center of the world with this most spectacular creature. And so it's, its picture gets out all over the place. It's one of the first dinosaurs to make it into the pictures in terms of movies, uh, Ghost of Slumber Mountain, which came out you know, within a decade or so of it getting named. One of the first stop wow. motion movies um, ever done featured a, sort of the, the perennial image, Tyrannosaurus battling really? Triceratops. That, that's not Gertie the dinosaur. No, the Gertie the was Gertie, a, so Gertie was the a very, brontosaurus. Exactly. That's the very first. And that's like old-fashioned pen and ink right, animation. Right, right. This was the first stop motion. So, you know, clay what models. What did it look like? Did it look like a, a T-Rex? Or I, like the old-fashioned T-Rexes? It's the old-fashioned T-Rex. Very, right. you know, very upright. Um, yeah, yeah. And so forth. Still had three-fingered hands at the time. Mm -mm. So, Tyrannosaurus sort of reached the public consciousness pretty early in dinosaur history and therefore you know it's became one of the iconic ones and has been ever since but independent of that the actual organism itself yes scientifically is a very cool creature it's the arguably the largest of the carnivorous dinosaurs ever you mean ever, ever larger ever. than spinosaurus yeah it, it it seems to be more massive than spinosaurus right. although not as long because right. it's more compactly built we don't care it's, about length 
Ray. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> girth is more important here. Um, and in fact, that is, that is actually an issue with the Tyrannosaurus, because as it turns out, that girth is going to be significant with regard to their agility. But that's newer discoveries. I'll talk about that later. So it's gigantic. And that in and of itself isn't, and that, that is cool, but it also means it shows us that you could be a functioning predatory land animal on the scale of an orca. Right. Right. Which, you know, we don't have anything like that in the Cenozoic. There's nothing like that in the Paleozoic. It's something that only dinosaurs were able to achieve. It's the last member of a long history of tyrannosaurs. And in almost, in almost every way, it's the most extreme. It's largest in size. It has the proportionally largest and therefore fewest number of teeth. It is the hmm. best binocular vision. It's got the biggest brain of the tyrannosaurs, at least in absolute terms. Wait, you, you mentioned that they have a hard palate. That they, they have a hard palate, exactly. Why? What does not have a hard palate in the sure. carnivorous yeah, dinosaur? And what does it mean? Sure. So if you, um, if you raise your tongue behind your teeth, uh, you could feel there's a, a solid wall of bone where the, mm -hmm. the bones from the, the roof of your mouth, the roof of your mouth come together. So bone, sheets of bone coming from the maxillae, the, size, the sides of our jaws, come together. And that's normal for us. Mammals have that. And we've had that for ages and ages. Crocodilians also have that. They evolved it independently. And we can even trace in the history of crocodilians how that palate first forms and then moves backwards. And functionally, it does a couple things, one of mm. which is you're able to bite down and twist because it makes the it is able to transmit the forces through the skull much more effectively. So you could either bite down and twist and sort of use torsional forces, or you could bite unilaterally, bite on one side really hard. You mean it gives structure it to gives the mouth? It gives structure to the, whole, to the whole jaw. If you look at most other carnivorous reptiles, they don't have that. So if you look at um, something like a carnivorous lizard, uh, like a, a monitor Komodo. lizard or a mosasaur, yeah, a Komodo dragon, if you look at a more primitive carnivorous dinosaur, like an Allosaurus or a, a Ceratosaurus, they don't have that sheet of bone coming across. And so they were probably pretty good at bilateral biting. So both rows of teeth biting at what the same time. What do you mean bilateral? Um, both sides. Just both sides, what, what, both left and right teeth contacting the meat at the same time. Right. And they're probably pretty good at biting straight down and pulling out, but not for grabbing on and twisting and tearing and and yanking off chunks of meat whereas a tyrannosaur with a secondary palate not as not as extensive as crocodilians have and as mammals have but more extensive than other carnivorous dinosaurs could do that it could bite down clamp down and just twist and yank and tear and pull and to power that the muscles on the back of the skull that we can infer because of the shape and and, and size of the bones of the back of the skull were massive on Tyrannosaurus, much more massive than an Allosaurus and its kin, or the Ceratosaurus, or Spinosaurus. But the T-Rex's teeth are not steak knives. They're actually made for exactly. that, that ripping. Puncturing, and, too, yeah, right? Puncturing, yeah. ripping, and crushing rather than slicing. Precisely. Yeah, so that the more ancestral mode was to get in there, slice out some meat, and pull it out. And those steak knife teeth of earlier meat eaters are perfectly good for that. They really do look like steak knives. So get in there and just slice out. Tyrannosaurs and Tyrannosaurus rex, most of all, because it's the most extreme, are very thick from side to side. 
they're the teeth, very the teeth the, yeah, the teeth are um, very thick for side to side, and they're deeply rooted. About two thirds of the tooth is up in the jaw, whereas in an allosaurus, it's about one half of the tooth is in the jaw. So it's able to smash into the flesh, smash into the bone, grab on there, yank back and forth, and just pull out big chunks of meat. And we even find at the you know the other end of the digestive system, out in coprolites or or, or dino poop. The poop, uh, yes. Yeah, Tyrannosaurus poop that's got smashed bits of plant-eating dinosaurs in it. So they were they were taking down not just the meat, they were eating the bone as well, and oh it was goodness. getting pulverized before they actually swallowed it. I know that there are teeth marks that match. Right. Uh, I've seen them at, at the Museum of the Rockies. T-Rex is on Triceratops and, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But is there evidence of an actual bite? You know, like you would bite into a pickle, a bite taken out of a hadrosaur that is like beautifully matched. I mean, I know there are teeth marks, but there's no evidence of a, of a giant bite. Well, we actually have a couple cases uh, yeah, in, both, so. in both Edmontosaurus, so the big duckbill of the time, and in uh, Triceratops, of course, the most famous of the horned dinosaurs, which was T-Rex's contemporary. Individuals that were bitten by T-Rex that managed to get away. So there's, in the case of, of Edmontosaurus, the duckbill, uh, in one case, there's a specimen in Denver that looks like it has some of the bones of the upper part of its tail chomped out, and the punctures around it seem consistent with a Tyrannosaurus bite. Yet those those bones are slightly healed over. So it lived to see another day. So a bit, a T-Rex bit a living animal in pain. Now, there are some <laughs> who question whether that particular wound is actually a bite and maybe maybe instead some other sort of abscess. Sure. But they can't say that about a, another case of a duckbill where the actual tip of the Tyrannosaurus tooth broke off in right. the tail bones and sure. then that healed over. And so there's it, only is, one way that could happen. Isn't there a tooth in a face somewhere? Um, there may be, and there definitely is in the case yeah. of Triceratops, a Triceratops horn that is bitten off with puncture marks that are consistent with T-Rex bites that has healed over. So that's, well, it seems the whole thing that we're kind of dancing around here, too. Can you prove yeah. that they were you know, chasing down the prey course? Jack right. Corner has been on the show with us, and he postulated years and years ago that it was merely a scavenger, and oh. there was tremendous pushback <laughs> on that. Right. And uh, what what is your how do you where do you come down in that debate? Is it and I know you've been studying the legs and mm -hmm. then there's the tiny the arm tendons, thing. Yeah, you did some work the on tiny tendons. arms. Yeah. So where where do you fall on the uh, predator scavenger sure. spectrum of things these days? Yeah, back in uh, in fact back in 2008, I wrote sort of what at the time was intended to be the definitive rebuttal of at least the <laughs> uh, the obligate scavenger hypothesis. So right, obligate. And, yeah. yeah, the idea that they scavenged that's certainly reason. In fact, it's not only reasonable; that's the expectation. Um, there are very few carnivorous animals that pass up a free meal that doesn't fight back. Um, yeah. So scavenging is a common mode of feeding for meat eaters, for carnivores. But the idea that it was an obligate scavenger, that it had to be obligate. Uh, obligated, that's all it could do. Right, it was right. just a scavenger, yes. right? So yeah, something, something that is scavenges only, that does not kill live food. So that hypothesis we can reject for a number of reasons. For one, for one instance, we have these specimens that were attacked 
while they were alive. Now, granted, they got away, but you're only going to see, you're only going to be able to demonstrate that a tyrannosaur or other meat eater attacked a living animal in the case of when it got away, because if it killed it, the wounds on it are going to look identical to scavenging right. Right. because the animal's dead and therefore it can't heal. So you can only really test that it went after a living animal if the living animal got away and was able to heal. But some of the specific lines of argumentation that Horner used are what I tried to, uh, to reevaluate. So the idea that it had tiny little arms and therefore it couldn't capture its prey. Well, I agree. It did not capture its prey with its arms. And why would it? You know, because it's got this gigantic, massive, incredibly adapted skull that is getting in the way of the tiny reach of these wussy little arms. You know, this is its primary weapon. Yeah. And, yes. you know, someone needs to tell, you know, wolves and, and spotted hyenas and, uh, and snakes and so forth that you can't be a predator without using your forelimbs. Uh, because right. <laughs> those animals will all use their jaws, either primarily or in the case of the snakes only, since they don't have forelimbs to use anyway. The teeth are extremely well adapted to smashing through, uh, through both flesh and bone. They do have a phenomenal sense of smell, or at least tyrannosaurs had a very large part of their brain devoted to smell based on our reconstructions of the shape of the brain. And it is true that animals, some scavengers like, um, like vultures have a really good sense of smell. Well, so do predators like wolves. And curiously, the only other group of carnivorous dinosaur that has an equally well-developed sense of smell are the raptors. And unless you want to go ahead and say that Velociraptor and Deinonychus were obligate scavengers, then you can't use very large olfactory loaves as evidence of scavenging. Right. Well, you, you mentioned uh, binocular vision earlier, right. that, that basically there you have these more or less forward-looking eyes. What would the use be of that for a scavenger at all? I mean, that's a right. hunting thing, wouldn't it be? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And in fact, in the case of tyrannosaurs, which have a much better binocular vision than something like allosaurs or ceratosaurs or so forth, it's probably a consequence of the prey they're up against. Because whereas, you know, the allosaurs and so forth are in a world dominated by the long-necked sauropods and by stegosaurs, so big walking walls of meat, they're sort of Just hard to go miss. Just snack on it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Just that, snip it. Yeah. yeah. That if you're uh, go if you're up against duckbills, which as far as big big herbivores go, were fairly agile, and especially up against triceratops and the other horned dinosaurs, so animals with incredibly fearsome weapons up front, extremely dangerous. Then having a precision bite is going to be that much more important. Wow, sure. I'm just thinking about this. It really is like a bullfight. I mean, this is you've got to be yeah. able to see this. There's a showdown. There's it, the horns are facing you. You've got to look at where it's coming at you, or you're going to right. get that fatal bite in there. Is there any extant animals that does the same thing a T-Rex did, take a huge chunk of both flesh and bone? Yeah, the closest would be wolves and especially spotted hyenas. Oh, spotted yes. hyenas, which, yeah. of course, they have yeah. some of the strongest bites of any sure. living predatory land animal, at least. Yeah. Sort of moving back from the head uh, and the shoulders, tyrannosaurs have exceptionally well-developed leg muscles. They, they have proportion, disproportionately large hip muscles for a carnivorous dinosaur, and they have very long, and for their size, slender legs. So when you see really? Tyrannosaurus rex, it doesn't look as an adult, it doesn't look as slender. But if you compare it to other comparable-sized giant dinosaurs, you see it's long and slender. And when you look at young individuals, you see they're 
very long-legged animals. A bunch of lines of evidence that we've been looking at over the years shows that they were probably faster than the other big carnivorous dinosaurs. And more recently, we've shown they were probably more agile. And this is where that issue of being, you know, the girth rather than length, so to speak, is important. In that by concentrating the mass towards the center of the body and having these great big leg muscles and hip muscles to sort of torque the body around, they could turn and twist and be more agile for their body size than things that are built more like like a sausage, where it's sort of harder to get that inertia twisting the whole animal around. And again, this is probably due to the fact that they're up against prey, which themselves are faster moving, at least, and more agile than the sauropods and the stegosaurs were. So sort of an arms race, in this case, actually a leg race uh, between well, I like those that. two. <laughs> um, Hey, but let me ask you this about the long legs, too. Aren't the long legs, I was reading that paper, Mm -hmm. also an advantage in terms of covering just long distances? Exactly. And wouldn't that be more of a scavenging, hunting kind of No, that's endurance. It's endurance. Well, endurance to just look and look and look. So it's sort of an issue of um, what we found in a paper back in 2020, yeah, was that if you look at sort of the cost of transport, the cost of motion, with mm-hmm. these longer legs, that they could cover more ground with the same amount of energy, which is great for foraging. And whether that's foraging for carcasses or just foraging for herds of other animals, they're both useful. Ah. So yeah, it's but, yeah, but extant they... carnivores have to cover large amount of ground in order to find their prey. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. And then at the actual foot itself, so they've got these longer legs, the main long bones of the foot, what we call the metatarsals, you coined, uh, equip- a, you coined a word. Yes. 1995, you invented the word arctometatarsis. Yes. Arctometatarsis, that's <laughs> right. Which is it's the big middle guess. toe of a what theropod foot. What the heck is that? Well, it's Can I guess? Is it because it's, it's, a tri- it's the middle toe, right. it's a triangular bone, mm-hmm. and it's weight-bearing. Weight right. So most carnivorous dinosaurs, in fact, most dinosaurs in general, have sort of just cylinders for the metatarsals. And the metatarsals are in us the bones of the sole of the feet. But dinosaurs, like cats and dogs and so forth, all walked on the balls of their feet. And so their ankle is held up. And so the metatarsals are the bones that are sticking up for that first joint you see. So in the case of most dinosaurs, all the main weight-bearing metatarsals are about the same length from the top to the bottom, or the same width from the top to the bottom. But in a handful of the carnivorous dinosaur group, including tyrannosaurids, truodontids, ornithomimids, um, ornithomimids, and then a couple of the oviraptorosaurs, and then these weird-ass tiny little insect eaters called alvarosaurs, they have one where the middle bone is pinched out between the other ones to one degree or other in the top part, and it turns into this wedge at the bottom. And... Over the years, we've been looking at different functional aspects to that. So my initial thought was that it was it was primarily to channel the stress up through the foot. And that's why I used arcto. So arctus in Latin in this context is to be compressed or channeled. The um, subsequent to my work on it, uh, Eric Snively has found a couple, uh, another issue is that it sort of locks that foot together more effectively so they can twist more quickly. 
which is consistent hmm. with our later work to show that they were, were more agile. So they can make a, a faster turn without sacrificing mechanical strength um, and by also achieving a longer stride because all the arctometatarsi um, are found, which is the plural of arctometatarsis, are, are proportionately longer than the ordinary style metatarsals in typical carnivorous dinosaurs. So all the ones who have this also have longer feet and so they're covering more ground with each stride and distance per time is speed. So we have long, slender but strong feet in these guys and a bunch of the rest of us looking at it have found evidence in tyrannosaurs of extra sets of ligaments that are actually entering into the bone slightly that are binding the metatarsals more strongly together than the equivalent that we see in dinosaurs that don't have that don't have an arctometatarsus is this specific to tyrannosauridae uh, so, so far, the best evidence of it is in tyrannosaurids. There's some slight evidence of it showing up, but not to the same degree in some of the other arctometatarsal theropods. So we're trying to expand it out now that we know what to look for. So the main contribution, I think, of this paper was the discovery that we could actually find evidence for these extra sets of, of binding ligaments to sort of snap the foot in together more effectively. Wait, what's the difference between Tyrannosaurid and Tyrannosauridae? Sure. Uh -oh. So there those are the go. same. Yes. Watch out. So Tyrannosauridae. <laughs> briefly, briefly, yeah, Tom. Sure. <laughs> Tyrannosauridae is just the formal Latin name, and Tyrannosaurid is the uh, is just the vernacular, the English form. So okay. it's like the equivalent of a of Felidae. Is the family of cats, Cat. but we could say felids if we're talking right. about them informally. But the Tyrannosauridae, this is the, the group of apex predators with tiny little arms and two-fingered hands, but gigantic body size. And they're nested within a much more extensive group of carnivores called the Tyrannosauroidea, um, the, so the Tyrannosauroids. And those ones go all the way back to the Middle Jurassic, and they start with really small, well, they include some really small carnivores in them. And it's only at the end of the Cretaceous, the last 20 million years or so, that they evolve and flourish and become the apex predators of the, of the at least Asia and North America, as the Tyrannosaurids or the Tyrannosauridae. So here in Alaska, we have Nanuksaurus, right. which is a Tyrannosaurid, right? right. So I it's can true. say I found, and I found a tooth of one once. It was a life-changing thing for me. But so I found a tyrannosaur or yes. a tyrannosaurid. Both. So tyrannosaur could be used okay. sort of generically for all of tyrannosauroidea. Okay. Um, it is, but however, tyrannosaurids are part of that group. And in fact, Nanuxaurus and Tyrannosaurus itself are even a subgroup, are part of a subgroup of Tyrannosauridae, called Tyrannosaurine, or the Tyrannosaurines. But what I want to <laughs> yeah. do is let's pivot on our very agile feet. See what right. I did there? Yep. You've made this creature even more formidable. You know, I mm -hmm. mean, really, you, you have protected the king and honored the king. He sounds scary and scary, but really his Achilles heel, so to speak, mm -hmm. Would be he's always they always make fun of the tiny arms, all right. right? So and there's been a recent uh, a recent we paper just about, came out, and yeah. I guess uh, it was Kevin Padian hypothesized right. that perhaps it was just uh, they had the tiny arms. So because when they're feeding, 
at their their dinner of uh, they yeah, they get it. They wouldn't. They, they get, get in the, the way. way. So would they be eaten by others? But you know what? This is such that's this speculation to me is so yeah. without. It's just a. It's All so right, without. But, but let's. But what is with the tiny arms? Sure, I think in the broad sense, it's true that the the arms would get in the way. That basically the particular suite of adaptations that were favored in Tyrannosaurids were emphasizing the skull over the arms. And right. so the arms had effectively lost any important functional use. And so they're getting smaller and, and less strong and less of a reach. And who knows, the artist and, and scientist Greg Paul you know, decades ago, speculated a Cenozoic Tyrannosaur had such a thing existed. Would be a may legless lizard. Yeah, so they have lost <laughs> them all together. So, um, of course, it seems natural. So that, yeah, the whether they were adapting to not having them get bitten, which was sort of Pavian's a speculation. I think that's sort of hard to demonstrate, but simply the fact that they're no longer required. And so like the wings of a flightless bird, uh, that no longer have a primary function. Natural selection favors individuals where they're reduced. And in fact, in the, in the, cu the Asian cousin of T. rex, Tarbosaurus, its arms are even proportionally shorter than they are in Tyrannosaurus. So, Well, one of the, uh, there, a lot of these pushbacks on like what right. were the arguments uh, that w explaining the, the tiny arms, I think one of the things, that I think you were quoted in the, mm -hmm. uh, some of the pushback too, or hypothesizing is that proportionally when they're younger, yes. you know, that they grew at different rates and when they're younger and actually more, even more agile, but they're going after different prey, their arms were longer as in their youthful days. You mean, yeah, that, you mean that's... youthful as in just the life cycle of a T-Rex, not precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, that's an important thing to remember about, you know, dinosaurs in general and Tyrannosaurus, it seems to be a big issue with in particular is that most of the time I've been talking about it, most of the time most people talk about Tyrannosaurus, we're picturing the full-grown, eight-ton adult. And sure, and that's an awesome thing to think about. But they didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, they came out of eggs, and a baby T-Rex would presumably be an animal smaller than a human being. Um, and they had to grow between these little guys to these giants. And they had to be able to function at all those stages. And when we look at younger Tyrannosaur individuals, their arms are proportionately longer hmm. and the skulls are proportionally weaker. The skulls and teeth are proportionally weaker, which suggests that they are feeding on different prey and certainly feeding in a different way. That a little, like an 11 year old, you know, half ton Tyrannosaurus is not gonna be able to take out an adult Triceratops, an adult Edmontosaurus. It would get shattered if it tried to. Isn't there a word for the difference between juvenile of a species and an adult, uh, the differences? Sure, so ontogeny is our general word for the, uh, for the changes of an okay. organism through its life cycle. Got it. And what I and, and others have speculated on is that many dinosaurs, and Tyrannosaurus in included, went through um, what we call ontogenetic niche shifts, um, oh. which is something I like that the we sounded that <laughs> yes, which is something that we see in a lot of animals today that have multiple sizes, that where the babies are a lot smaller than the adults. Now in mammals we typically don't see it because mammals, 
even if they start off very small, like, you know, a baby bear is a quite a small animal compared to the adult, but they're provisioned by mom until right. they're big enough to live on their own, and they're almost as big as an adult at that stage. And, and baby elephants can fly when they're very small. Exactly. Too, I've seen it in the ears. movies, both in cartoons <laughs> and in CG, so it must be true. Yeah. Um, so that... Um, um, so a mammal, it's less important. The, they are effectively not a different, they're not functioning differently in the ecology because mom or the herd or whoever is taking care of them. But in the case of alligators and Komodo dragons today and a lot of dinosaurs of the past, they may have, they, they have had parental care for a while. Like alligators have parental care for, for several weeks after they're born, but eventually they're off on their own. And alligators' diets change. You know, they start by going after like tadpoles and small fish and insects, and eventually they start adding in crustaceans like crayfish and turtles, and then eventually, you know, they're getting golfers. And then um, Komodo dragons, they start off hiding up in the trees because the adult Komodo dragons would eat them if they were on the ground, and they're going after insects and birds. And eventually, when they're big enough, they come down out of the trees, and they're going after snakes and rodents. And when they're really big enough, they're going after, you know, goats and deer and the occasional tourist and baby Komodo <laughs> dragons. Um, and so what many of us have speculated with and we've begun to try to show is that tyrannosaurs in particular um, went through some big anatomical changes through their life um, so that they presumably, like many dinosaurs, probably had parental care, at least for several months or weeks or months. But eventually, they're probably, in most species, out on their own, feeding on their own. And early on, they're going to be small animals. So they're going after mammals and, and so forth, getting a little bigger. Maybe they start taking on turtles and small dinosaurs and so forth. When they get to the size of something like Jane, who was a 11-12-year-old uh, 11 11 to 12 year old individual, of probably Tyrannosaurus, um, that's at the Burpee Museum at Rockford, Illinois, big enough to mm -hmm. go after ostrich dinosaurs like Ornithomimus and Struthiomimus and Leptoceratops and young Edmontosaurus and young Triceratops and so forth, but not able to crunch through an Ankylosaurus's armor and not powerful enough in terms of its jaws to take out the throat of an adult Edmontosaurus and certainly nowhere up to going after a big Triceratops. And then when they're adults, they're able to take on those big animals. But when they're adults, they're probably not able to capture, you know, leptoceratops, which is smaller than a human being. I have a competition yeah. question. Sure. So the last species of T-Rex was pretty much Maastrichtian. Right. Right. Which is the, the last age of the Cretaceous period. So why? Why T-Rex? Were there any carnivores in early Cretaceous or early late Cretaceous? Why was it the Tyrannosaurus that became the apex predator? Was is there any competition from any other carnivore, let's say, in the Mesozoic? Yeah, well, through, that's one of the weird things. You know, I've pointed out for a couple decades, and in, in recent years, this, uh, this subject has got a lot more particular attention by myself and by uh, Kat Schrader and others, is the makeup of the guild, the association of, predator, of dinosaurian predators and how they've shifted through time. And mm -hmm. if you look back in the Jurassic and in the early Cretaceous, you would typically have several different large carnivores inhabiting the same environment at the same time from multiple groups 
of carnivores. So you go back to the Morrison Formation, you go back to the Lake Jurassic of Utah and Colorado and so forth, and you've got Allosaurus, super common. You've got Torvosaurus, who's a big bruiser. Uh, right. So <laughs> Allosaurus is an Allosaurid. Torvosaurus is a Megalosaurid. Ceratosaurus is a Ceratosaurid. You've got Marshosaurus, which is a Megalosaurid, which is a little smaller. You've got Stokesosaurus, which is an early Tyrannosaurid, which is smaller still, and so forth. All inhabiting the same environment. And so Why? each of them Why has their own their own diverse. Role. Right. So they have their own they have their own prey niche. Yeah, and that's the question. They're, they're probably going after certain specific prey items, and they're probably hunting in specific fashions. And then that sort of pattern is common through the early Cretaceous, and then there's a the new twilight zone, this the, the time that we still don't have very many good samples, which is sort of like the mid part of the late Cretaceous poorly known for dinosaur fossils around the world. We come out of that, and in Western North America and in Eastern and Central Asia, we have tyrannosaurs as apex predators, and then the next largest predators are like an order of magnitude or two smaller. And well, they would be what? They've, they've been it's, triumphant. They're, well, they're kings. kings. Yeah, they're kings, so, but what was, under, what was next in Yeah, line? so the next largest ones would be dromaeosaurs, so raptors. Right. Uh, mm. In North America, up until the end of the Maastrichtian, there aren't any really big raptors. Most of them are smaller than human beings. At the very end, there's this form Dakota raptor that shows up, which is bigger than a human being. Still dwarfed by, by Tyrannosaurus. But, and it's about the only thing that occupies that middle spectrum. And but so, if they're smart and hunting in packs, they're going to have a totally different niche of prey right. than this giant monster. I mean, a T-Rex is a monster. Right. And so what, what I've speculated on, and others have, have found evidence for that, is that effectively the Tyrannosaur young were occupying these middle niches oh. in the ecosystem and effectively ah. acting as different species, well, that's, even though yeah. biologically they're the same species as the adults. Yeah, when we had Jack Horner on, he kind of came around to that too. We talked ah. at length about the predator-prey thing, but also the fact that the idea that maybe it was the young that inhabited this niche and the young killed different things. And, and basically, mm -hmm. but toward the, at the end of the very end of the Cretaceous, right before the old asteroid hits, it is, it's a global thing that Tyrannosaurids are ruling in that niche around the entire planet, Tom. Um, no, so Tyrannosaurids are dominating in Western North America and in Eastern and Central Asia. Over here, where I am in the Eastern part of North America, we don't know the dinosaurs of the Maastrichtian as well, but we do have evidence of a group of hmm. Tyrannosaurs, although they're not Tyrannosaurids, called the Dryptosaurids, that are, seem to be the largest predator. Oh. But wait, what we do know of them yeah. is that they were smaller than Tyrannosaurids, they were slender, and they had great big claws, great big thumb claws, although the arms were short. Mm. So we really want to find a good skeleton of one of them someday. Isn't there a T-Rex found in New Jersey at Kenneth Lacovera's site? It's probably Dryptosaurus material that they found right. there. Right, um, right, it's, right. it's not impossible because the great seaway that had separated North America for yep. most of the Cretaceous had mostly drained away at the very end. So uh, no one's going to be super surprised if you find T-Rex and Triceratops in the east at the very end, but we haven't yet demonstrated that. I want to ask a super nerdy question that's <laughs> drilling down on a very sure. 
a very subtle detail. And, and but I, we I have true, one too, a nerdy question. We true dinosaur geeks want to know this. Did Tyrannosaurus Rex, and it sounds a little silly when I ask it, did it have lips, Tom? Did uh, it, when it closed its mouth, when right. it closed its mouth, I draw a lot of dinosaurs. I started drawing them at age four. When it closes mm -hmm. its mouth, could you see its teeth? Yeah, I plead the fifth. No, <laughs> this is this is what I know. Could I know, you, sir? Yes, I have seen arguments from both sides, from both the people who think that they may have been more like crocodilians, where the teeth are exposed. Yes. Um, and it's true that, you know, certainly modern crocodilians are lipless, birds are lipless because they have beaks. So we don't know of the presence of lips in definite archosaurs, which would include uh, dinosaurs. Now, both What's modern... the closest comparative anatomy to a T-Rex? Well, here, so let, me, let, me, let me just yeah. give you this. So when you see a Komodo dragon right. and it closes its, it even opens its mouth, you don't see the teeth. And I noticed that yeah. in Prehistoric Planet, the BBC series, their Tyrannosaurus, I was watching very closely, yeah. it closed its mouth and like, oh, they got lips. Komodos don't have daggers like T-Rexes. Yeah, though. but they're, they're well, pretty, they actually, when you look at a T, when you look at the skull, that's the thing, you look at the skull of a Komodo dragon, or another monitor lizard, they have proportionally huge teeth. Right. But it turns out in life, they also have really deep gums. And then they yeah, also the have gums. these lips that are coming down, these lizard lips that sort of seal off the mouth. And we can't exclude those kind of lips from early members of the crocodilian lineage or from other dinosaurs. Right. We don't well, have the right impressions of the skull. Right. Uh, the skin of the skull to say for so certain. So it's okay that I'm still drawing it with the teeth, huh? Sure, I just, yeah. I just want a clearance that it's okay. okay. Yeah. I don't have to change all my stuff. Thank you. I, I sure got you another nerd, I've got another sure. nerdy question. So when I very rarely look at Instagram, about five minutes a day, <laughs> there is a channel called Nature is Metal. <laughs> and oh, they literally show uh, uh, yeah. the natural world, and they'll show these, I just saw today, wolf dogs tearing apart uh, an they're antelope. They're not wolf dogs, a they're African, um, African yeah. wild dogs. Here. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. 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 Like Aeon Pictus. Um, oh, there you go. <laughs> thank, thank you. They're sure. ripping an antelope alive. They're ripping yeah, it to terrible. death alive and eating it alive, and then the hyenas come in and finish the job. So right. how come we've never, or is there, is there a, an animation of a T-Rex really digging into a live hadrosaur with all the blood and guts and, and ripping of flesh. I mean, it's always implied, I but think I've never really seen it. The camera cuts away, or you, you go in like the Disney approach when it was yeah, yeah. a stegosaurus, but hey, you, you go into the eye and you see the, you know, the eye fading out or whatever, yeah. eye fantasia. <laughs> so yeah, I think that has more to do with the target audience rather than reality, that in reality you would have had cases of the animals, you know, screaming as their, uh, you know, bellies are well, being pulled out bit by bit. But, um, the, but the reason why I asked it, this is why T-Rex is so formidable in our psyche. Mm -hmm. It's because it did that. It is a true living monster. It, it is literally mm -hmm. a stuff of nightmares. And when you look at the size, when you stand next to that, the skull in the Smithsonian or at right. the Museum of the Rockies, you realize this thing could bite you in half. Mm -hmm. It takes down other monsters. And yeah. I think that's what that's why I want to see how it truly, really ate in life. That's mm -hmm. why I'd like to see that type of video or animation. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's something that I'm sure the animators would be interested in doing, but uh, <laughs> people who are paying them in yeah, order to, to yeah. do the animation. Yeah. Uh, Maybe uh 
paleo nerds could with yeah. our our vast resources could uh, do the really yeah. the truly yeah. t-rex uncensored right. exactly yes see it all right I think uh, I, I could keep going about T-Rex I know, I know. for a long I time. Know. So I'm mm-hmm. just going to, I think I'm going to jump right into the uh, time travel question, sure. Tom. Mm-hmm. What epic epoch, what perfect paleo period, what awesome age would you want to go back to? And what would you want to see, presuming you could time travel, sir? Well, you can't pick Bistrickian. Oh, oh, come on, man. Ooh, no, that's unfair, okay. dude. Yeah, oh, no, what would you okay. want to see? What? Sure. Uh, maybe you want to see that. No, I'm just curious. I do. Yeah. No, honestly, yeah, for obvious reasons, I would. the Hell Creek fauna has always intrigued yeah. me so much. That said, so to pick a second, that's a good question. And I think, you know, the natural next response as a dinosaur worker is the Morrison, so the Lake Cretaceous of Western North America. But I'm going to go different. And I'm going to go to uh, Northeast China at the time of the Ixian Formation, which is where we get most of the good feather. whole biota? Yeah, there's a whole biota. Uh, in part, because although we know all the little guys pretty well, or we know a lot about them, because that's what's getting preserved in these lakes are the little ones, we know sort of diddly squat, or maybe a little squat, but not much more than that, <laughs> of, the the giants, of the giant dinosaurs which were obviously there. There's no reason to think they weren't there. Right. Um, but because of the style of preservation, we're not seeing them. And so to see what those creatures were like that were inhabiting that world, sort of setting the foundations of the late Cretaceous would be a really wonderful thing to see in person. And then after that, just as not a, not a dinosaur paleontologist, but a paleontologist in general, assuming I had the appropriate oxygen support, would be to go <laughs> back to the Ediacaran. So before the Cambrian, uh... before the Cambrian explosion, when animal life is present, but not any of the major groups that we have around today. What exactly is going on with these things? There's a question. I was just there two weeks ago. Oh, cool. I was at the South Australian Museum and saw Dickinsonia there. Right. Oops. And you know what's crazy? It's not behind glass walls. Oh, wow. I literally, well, I literally just had to really keep myself from touching it. <laughs> Rubbing away the fossil. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, to see, see that world, what was it like before the rise of predation? There's only a handful of creatures that are doing anything as sophisticated as sort of scraping around the algae. And additionally, that's one time you can go into the ancient past and probably not worry about too much. You know, there's Except not anything that can take out. what you'd have to worry about. Exactly. Yeah, there's going to be so, so little oxygen in the atmosphere that you're going to need that support. And of course, all the interesting life forms that we know of is on, are underwater at that time. So you're, you're going to need scuba or at least snorkeling. So. Well, that's great. From the Cretaceous to the Ediacaran, that's mm-hmm. uh, quite a big span of time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, my question. Mm -hmm. Now, while researching for your interview, Tom, I found myself swallowed into your YouTube gullet. (laughs) I was blown away by the sheer number of your lectures and content there, and I counted over 120 lectures on subjects ranging from geology to climate change and, of course, quite a few on Tyrannosauridae. Mm -hmm. But what really intrigued me was your lecture on pseudoscience. Ah, yes. Now, hold on, hold on. I I think I know Mm -hmm. why you lecture this subject, but... Mm -hmm. Can you please briefly explain to our listeners why this is such an important topic? And what do you mean by the role of speculation and wonder in science? And why is it important? 
Sure. So, you know, I, as a kid, I was super into not just dinosaurs, but UFOs and Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and ancient astronauts and stuff. You know, as a kid in the late 60s and especially in the 70s, and that's sort of the heyday of things like In Search Of. And, and then I began to find out, to my dismay, that there are people in the world who will just make stuff up and will lie to you about things, as well as those who are, are doing things with good intention, but aren't necessarily understanding what the most likely possibility is, and they're choosing what most pleases them. When I began to learn about that, that's sort of where I was seeing what science really was. As when you're a kid, and, and to a lot of people after they're a kid, science is a bunch of facts that you learn. Uh, but it's not. It's an approach to understanding uh, the world around us. And, you know, uh, with this premise of, if you were wrong, how would you know it? You know, you don't just look for evidence that would support your claim. You look for evidence that would reject your claim and then subject your ideas to those tests. And if they stand up, then you can keep on saying this is a reasonable idea. But if they right. don't stand up, then you should have to let them fall by the wayside, let at least go. for now. Exactly. So we've seen over the last decade that when we don't pay attention to facts uh, and that when we prefer what we feel over what we know or what we can understand. Or what someone tells you is true. Exactly. On social we, media. Exactly. We can start making some bad decisions and decisions that actually affect people's lives and livelihoods in a, a detrimental way. Yeah, I'm not going to um, mention anything about the oil companies saying, putting doubt in exactly. climate change. <laughs> exactly. You know, there's a, that's a great example of that. You know, the issues of, of climate change, the issues of of epidemiology and so forth. The people who are trying to deny reality are using the same sort of rhetorical tactics that the evolution deniers used and that people, you know, in pseudoscience in general. So, you know, I felt much more feeling strongly about that, especially as I became an educator. And so I always include at least a little, in some cases, a lot of uh, re-examination of the nature of science and science versus pseudoscience as part of, as part of teaching, especially of undergraduates. That said, as Carl Sagan wrote, we need speculation and wonder in science. It's not just a bunch of facts. The facts are important and they're critical. The tools that we use, the information that we have. But science is a creative act. We don't know these things that we haven't discovered yet. We have to discover them. And part right. of the process of discovery is a creative process to come up with, okay, this is interesting. What might be going on? And then we figure out how would we test to see if that is likely going on. But so that aspect of it, to, to look at the world around us and see how wonderful it is and try to piece together what's, what's happening. Why is it doing it this thing? Why isn't it doing something else? That's what drives science. And whether it's molecular biology or cosmology or animal behavior or the evolutionary relationships of snails, or whatever, or figuring out the behavior of, of Tyrannosaurus right. rex. Right. You know, that's all driven by speculating about things, trying to see how we can turn our speculations into hypotheses, you know, some question that we could test, and then actually doing the hard work of testing them. So what well, we've done it here on this show, you know, what you're talking yeah. about, you know, science is kind of a messy process, mm -hmm. and it's challenging these notions. And here on this very show, we've talked to scavengers, you know, mm -hmm. we have to have the evidence, but then 
as it's argued through, you come to the conclusions and they stand the test of time. Right. And and wonder keeps you going and interested. And yeah. analysis exactly. determines whether you're right or wrong. Right. Right. And, you know, that's there will always be new things to figure out about the universe. You know, we are nowhere near at finding, even within dinosaurs, at finding all the dinosaurs that ever were. We're finding, you know, on average, almost one new species is named per week. It's like an average of about 42 a year, uh, 42, 43 new species of dinosaurs, of Mesozoic dinosaurs every year. That's so cool. And that's, you know, that's just dinosaurs. That's not counting all the other vast diversity of extinct yep. life. And then the even vaster, at least in terms of what we can find, of modern life. And that's just biology. You know, there's, we've got the James Webb telescope going to tell us all sorts of new things about the deep space and the origins of the universe and exoplanets and stuff. We got the possibility of fusion in our near future. Well, okay, they've right. been saying that for a long time, but maybe with that new discovery that we're a little closer to actually making it real. So there's all sorts of things. And, you know, people making discoveries in their own backyard or their own fields or whatever in fungi and yeah. bird behavior <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. The world is a fascinating place. You are an educator and you've mm -hmm. uh, changed the lives of, of thousands of uh, ah. young students over the years, mm -hmm. you know? So, right. And that's what fights the forces of anti-science and pseudoscience is basically mm -hmm. education and knowledge. Right. Absolutely. Tom, where can our listeners find your YouTube channel? What is just under Thomas Holtz? Where do um, we find that? You can find it, yeah. Find it under Thomas Holtz on YouTube. H-O-L-T-Z. Um, that's correct. Great. And you can always uh, follow me on on Twitter, if as long oh, as it man. still exists. Twitter, what, what is that? What's that? I've yeah. never heard of at, that. At, 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 at the time of this recording, there is a social medium called oh. Twitter, which exists. <laughs> oh. I have no idea if that's yeah. going to be true in the future. Let's but see I'm if it's still at, here in 2023. Exactly. At Tom Holtz Paleo. So P-A-L-E-O. We'll have those links on your webpage at Paleo awesome. Nerds. Well, this has been brilliant. And we could go for hours on T-Rexes and chomping and bites yeah, we and could. teeth. We could. I, I just have one very quick, just a short answer, Tom. Sure. I have to ask it. Feathers or no feathers on T-Rex? Probably fuzzy when young and okay. becoming oh. very, very sparse when they became larger. So you see I little think... strands of like exactly. feathery bits. All right. That's how I draw it. Thank you. Now okay. I can sure. peacefully. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, think, I think the way they did that in Prehistoric Planet was very good. I think that's been, in terms of animation, the most in my opinion, realistic depiction of Tyrannosaurus rex so far. I'll check it out. Well, thanks, Tom. This has been so enlightening. We could go on and on, but yeah. truly fun to hang out with you here today. Thanks for uh, joining us here on Paleo yeah, Nerds. I man. learned a lot. Thank you, Tom. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. T-Rex. Wow. Yeah, man. You wanted a paleontologist, uh, you know, and I gave you one, Dave, eh? Yeah, you did. You did. You gave me the king. Of paleontologists. T-Rexpert. So what did you yeah. learn from that? I mean, we've, you know, we've had tons of T-Rex discussions. Did you learn anything new? Well, yeah, you know, the work on the legs and things, you know, if uh, that is so agile and this extra extra bone, right? That you were, what's the word? Well, it's not bone? an extra bone. It's just, uh, it's called Shaped a uh, arctometatarsal. Very well done, sir. I picture this beast, this massive beast, just even faster and, and, yeah. and you know, more focusing agile. With it. Yeah, I, you know, the scavengering thing. Sure, they scavenge, but no, I would be yeah. very afraid. Yeah, me too.
And I didn't know that their bites would have also encompassed living bone as well as <laughs> chunks of muscle. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's some yeah. serious, serious eating. Can you imagine the sound of that? <laughs> would it sound something like this, Dave? Oh! <laughs> but it was a good point, too, about, uh, you know, these sort of sanitized versions that we've seen of uh, the killing thing. And I'm not sure I'd really want to see a well, full, bloody we're You know, we're eat. imagining these animals in a living posture. Why not imagine their... I, I'd like to see three things. I'd like to see their eating. I'd like to see their sex. And I'd like to see their defecation. Because seriously, we don't talk about those things, dude. Dude, I'm sorry, but you know, the big pile uh, in Jurassic Park where the thing was the size of a dump right, truck. Right. I mean, when you're talking about these giant sauropods, uh, it's I, I'm not trying to be gross here, but the size of their poo had to have been enormous. And same thing with as remember, Dean Lomax said they found a urine stream that had to have been a fire right. hose. And yeah, I'm not trying yeah. to be scatological here, it's just something that I would like to see in vision because it is part of the the natural process of these ancient and extinct, very extinct uh, monsters. And there's been a lot of speculation, too, on how they mated. And actually, that's been one of the theories about I the tiny I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. I mean, does the T-Rex lay the female down on I on don't know. Maybe back? we should just not imagine, Dave. <laughs> Why? That's just not, this I don't is something know. we have to know. We can't talk about these things. Why can't you talk about it? It's part uh, of uh, nature. Okay, the birds, the bees, yeah, and you know the what? T-Rexes. I'm just going to wow. say this. Mm. That's your Catholic upbringing, and let's end this right now. <laughs> Goodbye from Ojai, California, as you, uh, as you retreat into your terrible puritanical world of American embarrassment. Uh, we, I'm going to go shovel snow. All right. It's a long, long 100-foot driveway. And I'm going to go driveway. envision two T-Rexes getting it on. All right, man. That's you. That's the way you roll. All right, man. That's it. <laughs> the troll. See you, dude. All right. Another great episode, Dave. Thank yeah. you, man. Goodbye from Ojai, California. Catch Ken Alaska signing up. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. Mm-hmm.